You're listening to the Connect Over Coffee podcast, the show that brings you hope and inspires you to embrace the spirit of overcoming. Each month, we deliver the latest and greatest information on progress and advances in ovarian cancer screening, diagnosis, treatment, and survivorship. Now here's your host, Runsi Sen. Let's connect over coffee. Hello, Overcomers, and welcome to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. I'm Runsi, the founder of Overcome, and today we are joined by a very special guest and a very special friend, Dr. Anil Sud. As you can see, is he all glory of ovarian cancer and overcome with all his uh, t-shirts, his background, he's ready to go. So thank you, Dr. Sud. And so uh, in terms of introduction, so Dr. Sud is professor and vice chair for translational research at MD Anderson Cancer Center and as an oncologist, surgeon and a global expert in ovarian cancer, Dr. Sud is a scientist focused on converting lab discoveries into novel therapeutics. He is also the co-leader of the Ovarian Cancer Moonshot Program. So we have several questions to ask and several things to learn from Dr. Sud today. So join us for the next 45 minutes to an hour. I hope you have your coffee because I have mine. And we, there we go, he has his. And so we'll chat with him about all things ovarian cancer and also the advancements that are happening in the research uh, space for ovarian cancers. And also, if you have any questions as we go along, please type in the comment sections below and we'll get it at risk post the discussion. So with that, a huge welcome back to you, Dr. Sud, to this episode of Connect Over Coffee. Always such a special honor to have you with us. Thanks so much, Rusi. And boy, what a what a great series. You know, I've, uh, I was just looking through all the uh, recordings you've done uh, really pretty impressive. Um, so it's a really great job in uh, putting all these together. Yes, and we will be um, we will be hundred episodes strong in in twenty twenty four. So which wow. is a big milestone for for us. So thank you for uh, for saying that, you know good things about this series because we are pretty proud of it. So um, so uh, Dr. Sud. Uh, in terms of 2024, what should we be hopeful for or about when it comes to ovarian cancer in 2024? And if you were to pick the three most exciting advances in ovarian cancer that you see unfolding in 2024, what would you share with us and what, what should our overcomers know about their promise in advancing treatment for ovarian cancer? Yeah, it's... Uh... You know, it's a really exciting time in terms of all the the advances that are being made, and the pace of discovery and uh, new treatments is just incredible uh, at this point. You know, I think that um, uh, that there there really are going to be, I think, a lot of uh, uh, new things coming about. But if I had to think about, you know, perhaps three or four uh, things that are that that are on the horizon that continue to look really promising. Um, you know, among those, I think new treatments and new drugs and new combinations certainly are, um, uh, you know, is a space where there have been a lot of uh, major advances. Among those, I do think that um, that drugs that especially involve antibodies and um, and what are called antibody drug conjugates, uh, boy, what a what an exciting um, you know set of developments that have come about. And I do think that in the next year and perhaps even beyond, we're, we're going to see continued uh, development there. 
Um, the uh, most advanced among the antibody drug conjugates is the um, uh, drug called Mervituximab. Uh, the brand name is Elahir, and it's uh, you know it's a drug that targets the uh, folate receptor, so that the um, uh, treatment can be given in a much more specific way. And I think that that's just one of those uh, uh, such drugs in that class. There there will be um, many others. I think that will follow. And given that the the proof of concept has now been established that this class of drugs can show promise for cancer treatment, um, I just think they're going there's going to be a lot more investment in this space as well as um, uh, new drugs that that continue to come out. You know, a um, you'd asked for three, so I think a second um, uh, thing that I think we really need, and and I um, and I do hope that this this really. Uh, um, accelerates during 2024 and beyond is that we, we need better um, and, and improve clinical trial designs and paradigms. You know, the traditional way of uh, drug development has been fantastic and it continues to have a, have a major uh, place. Um, but I think we need more efficient clinical trial designs where we can accelerate the pace of, um, uh, of uh, testing the drugs as well as uh, getting those approved. Um, and among those, one of the uh, trial designs that I'm particularly excited about is something called an adaptive clinical trial. Um, and we've been uh, working, it, it's really a national group that's been working together over the um, uh, last uh, about two, two and a half years uh, to design this. And now we're really waiting for engaging um, one of the companies to come on board so we can launch this effort. Um, and our hope is that 2024 will be uh, the year when this get, gets off the ground. And there are two major components to it. There's uh, an upfront maintenance uh, component, and then there's an arm that um, that uh, that's designed for patients with platinum-resistant uh, relapsed ovarian cancer. And again, the power of this is that this is a perpetual clinical trial, so it's it's ongoing. But the different um, and there's a control arm that that continues to enroll patients, and then the treatment arms can can open and close at different times, so they're staggered. So there's a lot of efficiency, and given that there's a single control arm, um, the ability then to open and close the different treatment arms is certainly a lot better. Um, and, and so we're really excited about this. There have been similar trial designs that have uh, been launched for patients with breast cancer and even those with uh, with uh, brain tumors as well. And those are those are well underway at this point. So we, you know, I feel like that for patients with ovarian cancer, we need such a design that that helps us accelerate uh, pace of drug development. And then the, you know, the if I had to choose a third, uh, the third would be. Uh, perhaps a combination of things, um, which is that you know our ability to understand um, ovarian cancer um, in greater and greater depth just continues to evolve massively given the new technologies that are coming about, especially related to something called spatial analysis, where we can really look down at the single cell level and understand the relationships between cancer cells and the surrounding cells. And then, you know, this thing called AI or artificial intelligence has gotten a lot of hype, but I do think that it's going to find its its place in, um, you know, in terms of um, uh, should it be used for certain types of clinical decision making? Can it accelerate uh, the uh, pathology diagnoses? Can it help accelerate new drug development and make 
those drugs uh, available faster to our patients. So I think we we really are at a point where we're we're um, uh, trying to figure out what's what's the right place for AI and how can we uh, how can we use that much more efficiently for uh, for uh, ovarian cancer uh, and so on. Such a fantastic summary. Thank you, Dr. Sud. So just as a follow-up on the first um, point that you raised on the ADCs, right? So you mm -hmm. said there are many more, uh, you know, uh, to come uh, mm -hmm. in terms of options. So we, as I understand that ADCs are only um, efficient when it comes to the folate receptor alpha patients. So when you talk about the more versions of the ADCs coming forward in 2024, do you think it'll have a broader significance in terms of inclusion or is it going to be similar um, to what we have today? That That's my question number one. And then question number two on your AI because you sparked my interest there because um, it's, it's important to realize, I think that AI in itself is not a bad tool. It's only how we use it uh, that will determine whether it becomes uh, bad or an inefficient or an efficient tool. So in terms of diagnosis, you talked about uh, some aid from AI. And also um, to me, I feel like when we come to personalized medicine, AI may be able to enhance what we offer our overcomers in terms of terms of treatment options, in terms of specific medications or lifestyle, even guidance. So, talk to us a little bit about um, these things, like you know the sure. yeah yeah no very very timely questions. You know, I think the the ADC that's aimed at folate receptor is literally just a starting point. I think there's right. a lot more that that can be done. You know, there are ADCs that are well. Uh, underway for clinical development that target uh, something called HER2 that, that's been historically particularly yes. relevant for patients with breast cancer. Yes. But having said that, you know, the early clinical data so far would suggest that these ADCs that target HER2, it may not, it may not matter what kind of cancer uh, they have, is particularly among gynecologic cancers, but rather whether or not they, the target HER2 is present on the cancer cells. Mm -hmm. Um, so I, I think that we're certainly going to see that. There are other uh, ADCs aimed at uh, trope 2, tissue factor. There, so there are many, many ADCs. Mm -hmm. And not just that, I think there are other targets that we haven't even fully discovered yet mm -hmm. against which the ADCs can be developed. Another important advance I think that we will see in the next year or two years um, is that Historically, we were a bit limited in terms of what drug could be attached to an antibody because the, the types of linkers were, were somewhat limited. Well, that's being advanced now quite a bit so that the diversity of drugs that can be attached to the antibody is going to be much greater. And that will, I think, further afford um, better uh, design of uh, ADCs that can then be brought into clinical testing and then hopefully get registration and so on as well. Yeah. And, and then, you know, with regard to AI, you're absolutely right. I think that um, it's it's how it's used and, and what purposes, it, it certainly varies a lot. I think that among the um, the broader population, perhaps chat GPT is, is what people uh, relate to in terms of uh, AI. But boy, I think there's so many other applications. You know, we know that just as an example, um, and this is not something that's ready for prime time by any means at all. 
we know that you know the pathology diagnosis, for example, can can vary depending on if it's um, if it's somebody with major expertise in gynecologic cancers versus somebody who does uh, broad pathology. And you know there there's some studies that would suggest that, for example, with um, with certain types of rare tumors, the likelihood of misclassification is a lot higher um, if you just look at general hospitals and so on. Well, how do we improve upon that? And and I do wonder whether AI-based systems could be one such strategy. And that's not to say that that will replace pathologists, but not not, not at all. But rather, could they help supplement the um, the eyes of a pathologist in terms of you know making the diagnoses much more accurate? And we now know that um, you know the selection of treatments is only as good as. Um, the diagnosis that's made on pathology. So the more accurate the diagnosis can be, the better off I think our, our treatment algorithms and so on will be. Another example is imaging, whether it's CAT scans or uh, MRI scans or whatever they may be. Um, you know, the resolution at which they are conducted and, and who's looking at them and with how much care um, can vary, we know that. Um, and again, if AI algorithms or approaches, again, it's not that you, you that we're asking that that uh, that I think that we're going to replace radiologists, not at all. But rather, I think these kind of technologies can help hopefully supplement and make the diagnoses. You know, picking up recurrences, picking up the sites of recurrence or the sites of disease, much better than than a human eye can do. Boy, that would be that would be an incredible advance. In other places, you know, we know that the rate of uh, testing, the molecular testing for uh, for uh, cancers, is accelerating, and we know that a lot of um, the cancers do get tested. Mm-hmm. Well, once you get the results, a an oncologist, especially you know, in community settings, may or may not know. Okay, well, what are the newest drugs that are coming about, or what are the clinical trials that you may be able to pair that. You know, what if we could design AI systems that could help screen through such testing results and rapidly come up with opportunities, hopefully both geographically as well as at a national scale, uh, so that we can make access to care better for those patients as well. And those are, again, just a few examples. I, you know, I can think of so many places where AI-based systems could really have an important place in, in oncology, especially for uh, patients with ovarian cancer. Yes, absolutely. Thank you for that hopeful message. And from moving from hopeful to challenges, right? So the, my next question was, um, yes, there are a lot, lots of you know exciting advances happening in this space, but what are still some of the challenges and critical questions that still remain in ovarian cancer today? You know, there are quite a few. And and again, just for um for discussion, we'll we'll will address a few of them, but that's not to say that others are not important, uh, but rather, um, you know, these are some of the things that that really, um, I, I think, are important challenges that, that I think we can um, uh, hope, some we can overcome in a near-term uh, basis, some will require uh, longer-term efforts. So, Perhaps in the latter category, in the longer-term category, is early detection. It's, it's a, uh, it's a, clearly a desirable goal, but are we there? And do I see it, you know, being solved in the next year? Likely not. Uh, It's a a really uh, important, but very difficult challenge to tackle. 
And there are many reasons for that. Um, you know, as we continue to understand the biology of this disease, um, there, there are many opportunities, but we also know that the incidence of ovarian cancer is declining over time, especially in the US and some of the Western countries. So in a disease type that's, that's decreasing in incidence, then the early detection tests have to be even that much better for them to be reliable. And, and then the other challenge is how do you scale these? How do you make these widely available? So that's one. The second is- Dr. Sud, I'll interject just yeah. one thing here on the early detection thing, right? So I'm looking at it on two levels, early detection before diagnosis, early detection for recurrence, right? So now, we know that the, to your point, the early detection for diagnosis, it's still far, you know, we have some ways to go to get there, early detection. When it comes to picking up the ovarian cancer returning, that is also some sometimes, you know, the detection timing is very important for the welfare of the patient, right? So would you say in terms of early detection in ovarian cancer recurrence, we have reached where we need to be, or do you think we have more work to do there? Yeah, let me answer that question in two ways. One is that you know there are certainly opportunities for detecting um, recurrence earlier and earlier. Yeah. That can include your know, circulating tests, including circulating nucleic acids or exosomes or, or extracellular vesicles. Uh, improving imaging techniques. So, so there are clearly a lot of technologies that are evolving that I think can be deployed. I think the harder question in some ways though, is that, okay, if you pick up somebody's relapse early, what can you do that would be clinically meaningful? So, and let, let me elaborate on that. So, you know, so far the studies would suggest that say if you have a patient whose C125 is clearly rising, where we're worried about relapse, but imaging doesn't pick up anything, right? So, so far, one of the large-scale studies that was done would suggest that if you intervene with chemotherapy or whatever treatment, when the CO125 is rising, compared to waiting until something shows up on, on imaging, the ultimate outcome for those patients is really no different. Um, and if anything, sometimes you end up, you know, adding more toxicity because you you started treatment so early and so on. So, but that doesn't mean that we can't get there. Now, um, you, you know, to your question earlier about one of the major challenges, I think, you know, improving immune therapy remains a major challenge. We know that the immune system is important, but this cancer is just uh, very difficult in the context of um the presence of immune cells and, and how to improve immune therapies doesn't mean that it can't be solved. I do think that it can be improved and, and it can be solved. That also goes back to your second question, which relates to, um, well, what if you pick up cancer even earlier and earlier? Boy, if we could get to a point where we can improve you know, immune therapies, perhaps in the upfront consolidation or in the maintenance setting, those could be introduced. Or if we pick up the cancer early and we can introduce you know, new cancer vaccines or new uh, other new uh, types of approaches, perhaps that could be more clinically impactful. Um, and I think that's that's what's really needed uh, is that, okay, if we pick up somebody's relapse early, um, this, is, this is what we would want to do so we can improve their ultimate outcomes and so on. And I feel like this is where also AI could be brought in for a lot of additional, you know, I mean, if they, if we, 
if AI could have a supportive role in potentially figuring out what kind of uh, treatments or things of that nature could be executed for that particular patient. Uh, but do you bring up such an important point that, you know, even if you pick up early the, the cancer coming back, there isn't much difference in the overall um, uh, results for this patient in terms of the treatment pattern. You could potentially in, I mean, I don't know, I mean, even uh, increase the toxicity for the patient with additional rounds of chemotherapy. So these are all good things to keep in mind when we talk to our uh, providers as well um, in terms of pushing for the early detection. So thank you. Um, so frontline therapy, uh, frontline maintenance therapy, I wanted to ask you, how is that evolving in ovarian cancer and uh, how, what is its role in keeping the cancer at bay? And in which setting would you not recommend it? And uh, what should our overcomers know and ask of their care team about this, uh, the evolving role of frontline maintenance? Um, you know, I, uh, it's certainly a, an incredibly important space uh, where we need to uh, continue to do better and better. Now, one thing I'll qualify it is that, you know, ovarian cancer, as I think most people know at this point, is a it's incredibly diverse uh, cancer type. There are many, many, many different subtypes. So I think when we talk about maintenance, you know, uh, right now, it's predominantly for those patients who have uh, high-grade serous cancer, perhaps endometrioid subtypes, and, and certain other subtypes of cancer. There are uh, That's not to say there aren't maintenance uh, options for those with less common subtypes. There are, uh, but I think it, for, for this uh, discussion, perhaps we'll focus more on the high-grade serous part for now. So, you know, in the early um, 2000s, there were clinical trials that, that were done that looked at um, using uh, chemotherapy, so paclitaxel or taxol for maintenance. And, you know, it showed some initial interesting data, but that didn't really pan out. Um, and, and we know that chemotherapy on an ongoing basis can certainly have its um, uh, side effects and so on that can be difficult to, to address. So, now, over the last several years, um, what we've learned is that those patients who have a germline mutation in BRCA1 or 2 or related genes, or who have a tumor-based um, uh, mutation in those genes, or have um, something called HRD-positive uh, uh, cancers or homologous recombination defects in the tumor, then PARP inhibitors have certainly been, in my view, game changers for, for upfront maintenance. Um, and those are, uh, I, I think, heavily used in, in that kind of a setting. And the data have been just uh, very consistent in terms of um, uh, improving, especially progression-free survival of patients with um, ovarian cancer with those drugs. Now, patients who have um, homologous recombination, what are called proficient uh, tumors, or whose tumor doesn't test positive for HRD, you know, even though the PARP inhibitor does carry a label in that setting, the magnitude of benefit is less clear. Uh, it's 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 really quite minimal in that setting. So most oncologists tend not to necessarily use PARP inhibitors in that setting. Now, um, drugs that target angiogenesis, and I know we've we talked about this a little bit in the past, so bevacizumab that targets the blood supply to cancer, 
that's certainly uh, approved for uh, for upfront maintenance as well. And you know, as we continue to learn about what are the appropriate roles for it, um, perhaps the the more important role for that drug is in patients who have higher risk disease, meaning those who have particularly advanced cancer that may have spread to um, to other organs like liver or lungs and so on, or who have a residual cancer after their surgery, maybe the ones to benefit more from using um, uh, bevacizumab for, for a maintenance setting. Now, the other question you brought up is, you know, who are patients perhaps who, who may not be the best candidates for uh, upfront maintenance? And, you know, in this is not an absolute answer, but it's a, uh, what we're considering is that perhaps patients who have a really good response to therapy upfront, who have no residual cancer at the end of surgery, and their cancer is, um, it doesn't have HRD or it's homologous recombination proficient, you know, the, whether or not those patients benefit from bevacizumab is, is less clear. Um, and, and that's a setting we'll, we'll have a discussion with the patients and perhaps not use maintenance uh, currently. But, you know, uh, as I mentioned earlier in this adaptive clinical trial design, um, we feel that, that there are opportunities for improving maintenance uh, strategies. And that's, that's the reason why one of the major components is a maintenance um, arm uh, for, uh, for that adaptive clinical trial, especially for patients who have homologous recombination proficient uh, ovarian cancer. Um, and you know the kinds of drugs, again, that can be positioned there or the combinations um, are certainly quite a few, including uh, ADCs that we already talked about, including some of the immune drugs that are coming about, as well as other antibody-based treatments. So really are a lot of opportunities that, that we can develop in that space. Wonderful. Thank you, Dr. Sid. So um, you are also the uh, co-leader of the Ovarian Cancer Moonshot Program. So mm -hmm. tell us a little more about this program. What are the uh, key vision areas for you and uh, that you and your team are addressing? And what should our overcomers know about the new knowledge and hope that this effort uh, is to bring? Yeah, thanks. You know, this effort has now been going on at MD Anderson uh, for about 10 years. And um, um, there have been many, many, uh, many uh, programs that we started as a part of uh, the Moonshot that have quote, graduated, meaning that they they just became routine part of care, so they didn't necessarily need to uh, reside within the umbrella. And I'll just give you a couple of examples. You know, when we first started, our decision-making around who should have surgery up front versus who should receive chemotherapy was a bit arbitrary. And, and so we implemented uh, laparoscopy as, a, as an approach to make much smarter decisions about who should or shouldn't have surgery up front. And that I feel really proud about that about that our group was able to implement that consistently. And so our compliance rates have been incredibly high. And that's a program that that graduated from the moonshot because that's just now routine care. And so now for patients who do go to upfront surgery, um, the likelihood of removing all visible cancer approaches 90% uh, compared to before this program when it was only about a third of the times that we could do that. Um, so again, I feel really proud about uh, that, that particular uh, implementation. Another um, aspect that I think is, uh, has been at a broader level um, has, I think, been such a success is that, you know, historically, uh, genetic 
counseling and testing rates were pretty low, uh, both at MD Anderson and, and around the country. And that was a major effort that Dr. Liu helped to uh, to really champion and implement in our um, in our moonshot. Uh, within one year, our testing rates exceeded 80%. Um, and so within a fairly short period of time, that just became routine part of care. And, and now, um, you know, that that's still done. Now- So, so Dr. Sud, when you say 80%, you are speaking of Anderson only, or is it nationwide right now? Well, that was at MD Anderson. Um, so that, that was a nationwide. And nationwide, the rates continue to improve, but they're not still- uh, Still not there yet. No, still not there yet. And moreover, a, a, another really important part that does continue to bother me is that in underserved communities, the, the testing rates are way low. They're, they don't even approach 20%. So I do think that you know there's a lot of work that needs to be done. But again, if you were to ask me, I do think it's a solvable problem. I do think that it's scalable um, so we can, we can do much better. So I just wanted to give a couple of examples about how the Moonshot effort has evolved. The current major three projects that are, that are um, a part of the Moonshot is one is to uh, improve uh, Im immunotherapy. And um, we're working with Dr. Cesari and with Dr. Rizvani. We're really excited about something called CAR NK cells. We think that this particular approach is going to be far better than, than CAR T uh, based approaches, especially in terms of uh, scalability and in terms of uh, the potential for side effects and even effectiveness and so on. Uh, it's a it's a much longer discussion that that um, at some point you know I think we should hold, uh, but really excited about that. And there's a lot of other uh, work going on in in um, in the uh, immune space in terms of understanding mechanisms of immune suppression, how to improve immune therapies, and so on. And, and I'm, it, I'm sorry for asking so many questions, but sure. you're bringing up such interesting points that I cannot hold myself for uh, for the immunotherapy, um, the work that you're doing, I'm assuming in, including the sensitive as well as the resistant overcomers, right? Both. It, it, absolutely. The current clinical trial focuses more on patients with platinum-resistant relapse cancer, um, but that, that doesn't mean that it can't have applications uh, down the road for those with platinum-sensitive relapse. Of course it will, but that's just a, a particularly, um, uh, you know, a, an area of particular uh, need right now. So that's a reason some of the clinical initial clinical trials focus in that space. The second project is... Um, is that, um, you know, as I mentioned earlier, we know that drugs that target the blood supply, so bevacizumab clearly has a major role and it's used a, a lot for patients with ovarian cancer. But we know that after a certain period of time, the cancers adapt and they start to grow despite this treatment. We made an observation that there is a, a uh, metabolism pathway, uh, particularly around a, an enzyme called glutaminase, that seems to play a role in how tumors adapt to this drug. So we did a lot of preclinical work. One of our uh, clinical fellows, Dr. Glassman, she actually helped champion this work and, and really developed a, uh, came up with a combination where a new drug that was developed at MD Anderson called a glutaminase inhibitor is then combined with bevacizumab plus chemotherapy. Really effective uh, response rates in, in preclinical studies 
And so Dr. Tim Yap and Dr. Shannon Weston helped us to bring that into clinical trials very rapidly. That clinical trial is, is open and we are uh, continuing to enroll patients in that. You know, the very early data look really exciting and, and we wanna obviously uh, enroll that clinical trial as quickly as possible so that we can advance that combination further. Um, and, and there are many other uh, drugs or opportunities for improving the effectiveness of bevacizumab. So it's a it's a large area uh, that that I think continues to uh, evolve. Uh, and one of the targets that we identified recently is called CD5L. Uh, in partnership with Dr. Zhishang An, we developed a new antibody against that that we're trying to bring into clinical testing as well. So again, a lot of space. The third major project is, is that, you know, while the PARP inhibitors have been incredibly exciting development, we know that if they're used, especially in a relapse setting, there are patients who can develop secondary cancers, uh, particularly uh, a type of leukemia called AML, um, and and a um, another condition called uh, MDS, and um, and these can be deadly conditions. Um, so we were um, uh, we felt that it was really timely to launch a project that helps us understand why do some patients develop this? What can be biomarkers that can give us early clues on who might be at risk for these kind of secondary cancers? Maybe they are patients who, where we shouldn't use PARP inhibitors um, who are particularly at risk for these kind of secondary cancers. Then the third thing is that, you know, once this type of leukemia develops, it's deadly. Um, and so we're uh, also working with our leukemia colleagues to figure out, you know, listen, are there better uh, treatment approaches? The traditional approaches for leukemia don't work so well in these secondary uh malignancies. So we're trying to also figure out what are the other opportunities for new drug development in that space. You know, this is an early effort, um, but I do think it's a very timely and important area that we need to address um, so that we don't cause a second problem, you know, as we use these kinds of drugs and so on. That is very significant. Thank you for sharing this with us, and especially particularly the point that if there's a way for us to determine which patients will not uh, benefit from PARP inhibitors and, and maybe even at risk of uh, developing secondary cancers, that saves so much you know, of time, effort, resources, you know, everything, and, and health, most importantly, for our overcomers, right? Absolutely. So, uh, very, very important point. Thank you. Um, I have to ask you about stress hormones because all guests and everywhere they talk about you, they talk about your work on stress hormones. So tell us a little bit about, you know, your research on the effect of stress hormones on the ovarian cancer growth and progression. I've asked this question to you multiple times, but, um, you know, it's cited by so many physicians and scientists that co collaborate with you that we want to know more about this. And also, you know, do you see in your work, have you seen any established linkages between depression, anxiety, or mental disorder and the growth and progression of ovarian cancer? And what is the key takeaway of the study that our overcomers should know of? Thanks. You know, uh, first of all, I just want to mention that you know, anything I do, I, I uh, have been just incredibly fortunate to have uh, a network of collaborators who who um uh, who just been just so uh, helpful and in, in terms of driving these different areas. 
you know, a lot of the work, and, and I know you've uh, had her on um, on um, uh, an episode previously, um, but really a lot of this work for, for me started when I start, uh, worked with uh, Dr. Susan Lutkendorf uh, from University of Iowa, uh, which is where I did my fellowship training and, and, and so on. And she's just been an incredible collaborator for, at this point, for 25 plus years um, that we've been uh, working in this area. You know, it's... Um, it's it's an area that when we started working in it, it was considered soft science, and and a lot of the uh, uh, you know uh, quote hardcore scientists would would sort of uh, uh, would would not have a positive view of, uh, of of this kind of an area, but now it's just so rewarding to see you know how this field has evolved. And that it's okay for people to talk about the effects of stress on different diseases, including um, including cancer. You know, I I the, the second point I would just make is that you know when we talk about this field, you know, stress can be really adaptive. So acute stress, um, you know, that that we face as a part of just our day to day lives. There's nothing wrong with that. That's actually incredibly adaptive, and that's a that's a part of how we function. And that's a that's a uh, healthy part of uh, of our stress responses and so on, you know. But with le- just like with a lot of things, you know, too much of something can can be bad. Um, and so, chronic stress is is really what we talk about in in the context of um, uh, making disease or cancer worse. So, in the context of you know many um, of the different facets of stress. So, by the way, for a psychologist like Susan Luckendorf or or Dr. Um, uh, uh, Lawrence Zokohun, who I think you've also uh, brought on this episode before, you know, stress is a catch-all term. And, and the, some of the specific terms that you brought up, you know, related to depression and so on, I think it's important to address. So what we see are that, you know, technically, depression is actually not a part of necessarily the stress uh, paradigm. But having said that, those with long-standing depression or major depression, a lot of the the um, uh, of a lot of the cytokines or the pathways that get activated in their bodies are very similar to chronic stress, and so we do see um, relationships with uh, depressive uh, scores or high depressive scores and um, and patient outcomes, and that's been shown. So uh, Dr. L- uh, Susan Lutkendorf showed that in patients with ovarian cancer. Uh, Lorenzo Cohen showed that in patients with kidney cancer. And so there are many cancer types where we see that. You know, a, a, the exact on the exact opposite spectrum of, uh, of chronic stress is something called social support. And that's the extent of network around people that they have access to. And the higher the level of social support, the more protective it is. And that's again been shown uh, very consistently across different cancer types. Uh, So Susan showed this in patients with ovarian cancer that it actually relates to patient survival or patient outcomes. And um, other uh, groups have shown that in patients with breast cancer, kidney cancer, and so on as well. Now, anxiety specifically, there isn't really great data to show that that's a, that pretends poor outcomes and so on. Um, so I, I do think that it's important to understand, you know, which, which aspects of these biobehavioral pathways do or don't relate. Um, you know, another part of this is that, okay, now that we are starting to understand this biology at so much deeper level, what can we do, do about it? Susan and some of the other groups around the country have championed uh, 
by behavioral interventions. Um, a, uh, a person named Michael Antoni at Miami, he's championed something called uh, CBSM or cognitive behavioral stress management. There are pharmacological opportunities such as with beta blockers or with other um, uh, medications that uh, per perhaps even combinations with anti-inflammatory drugs that may work uh, in this setting. A really exciting clinical trial that was done at Roswell Park um, with a beta blocker plus immunotherapy in patients with melanoma showed striking results in terms of uh, response rates and so on. Uh, that those kind of studies, I think, you know, are are really where we need to move to and 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 test. You know, do these kind of interventions matter and so on? You know, many years ago, we found out that uh, that ovarian cancer and other cancers do actually have nerves that can mediate perhaps some of these kinds of effects in within the cancer and so on. And uh, initially, again, a, a bit controversial, but now. Um, you know, after uh, Susan and I and others actually championed this biobehavioral research network through the NCI, the NCI actually put money into studying the role of nerves in cancer and so on. So it's it's really interesting and rewarding to see how this field has continued to uh, develop and evolve further. A lot still needs to be done. Yeah, and also I feel that it's so important to your point that we do not ignore these, you know, this the situations or circumstances that many times we do get so clinical about the disease. But again, I'm a big proponent of overall health being mental and physical. So it's so important that we understand the, the intricacies between the two and give them equal importance, you know, not just in cancer, but in everything in life, right? So thank you for highlighting that for us and our overcomers appreciate that. So now, um, your research interest. I mean, you are a physician, you are a surgeon, but you are also world-renowned researcher. So tell us about, you know, you've talked to us about your uh, Moonshot program, but some of the other things that you are interested or your, your lab is working on, what is your primary, um, you know, areas of uh, research interest and how do you see them uh, evolving in 2024 and uh, beyond? Um you know, one of the interests is uh, really relates to what we started to discuss earlier in terms of targeting the blood supply to cancer. Yeah. Um, I still feel like there's so much that can be done. So we have um, members of our group who are working on identifying new targets for um, for therapy in, in that area in terms of better strategies for targeting the blood supply. And one of those uh, is called EGFL6 that similarly we've developed a new antibody that's a part of our uh, SPORE uh, uh, grant mechanism. Um, and, and I know you're actually really helping us with a, as an advisor on the SPORE and so on as well. Um, still a lot of work in terms of uh, understanding how cancers adapt to this class of drugs and in, in developing then strategies to delay this adaptive resistance or overcome that once it, uh, once it does show up. Where um, I, I do think that we need to understand how this cancer spreads to a much greater extent. Historically, you know, most people used to think that this cancer just spreads from surface to surface. I just don't think that it's that simple. We know that, you know, when we do surgical staging or when we do imaging studies, there are a lot of patients who have spread into the lymph nodes, into other organs, and so on. How does it get there? How do we 
understand the biology better so we can be smarter about intervening or preventing the uh, the uh, cancer getting access to those kinds of uh, places and so on. So we have a doctoral student who is really doing in incredibly exciting work in that area uh, that I'll hope to share in more detail, you know, at upcoming um, uh, uh, discussions and so on. We're doing a lot of work in terms of new biomarkers, in, especially around um, what were called exosomes, but now they're called extracellular vesicles. Those, I think we can actually even um, engineer for therapies and so on. So one of the uh, lab members, um, and this was a completely unexpected area that we discovered that actually plants make similar vesicles. So we now have a whole effort in collaboration with a plant geneticist at Rice, um, Dr. Janet Bram, where we're um, trying to engineer plant vesicles for cancer therapy. Uh, so they're plants that have, um, you know, uh, really beneficial compounds in their own right that are anti-inflammatory and so on. But others we can engineer where we can put drugs of interest into vesicles that we can then um, deliver. You know, I find this exciting because, you know, we consume plants on a daily basis and with the exception of, you know, certain things like peanuts and so on, where their uh, allergies are more common. There are a lot of uh, plant species that, that we consume quite safely and on a large scale basis. So I think that um, that I really do want to push on that um, in terms of developing that further. And then, you know, we have members of our group who are doing the kind of studies that I alluded to earlier, really in-depth uh, look at ovarian cancer in terms of um, spatial analyses, both at, uh, you know, at RNA, DNA, protein, metabolism, multiple levels, so that we can be so much smarter about new types of treatments and so on. So those are some of the areas that that we're really excited about that I um, that I hope that we can make major uh, advances in. Thank you, and like you said, we'll have to bring you back when you know as you evolve with these um, studies to learn to learn more about what's happening. So um, now, just switching gears to surgical advances, right? Because you're also a surgeon. Um, so I recently was reading that um, that the study has established that aggressive upfront surgery helps in extending progression-free survival in ovarian cancer. Um, tell us more about your thoughts on this and also on your thoughts on second-look surgery, because I'm seeing the second look come up in articles more and more than before. So talk to us about that. Yeah. You know, as far as the uh, the surgical resection of ovarian cancer up front, um, you know, we've known for a long time that if we can remove the the more cancer that we can remove, the better the out uh, the better out, the outcomes. Particularly if we can remove all visible cancer. The harder part is that um, you know a lot of our patients also have a number of other comorbidities, and uh, some of our patients are quite elderly where. Um, you know, so it becomes a balance of what's the right approach that you can do in the safest manner for a given patient, right? If if we do a, a you know a really aggressive surgery and the patient doesn't make it out of the hospital, I consider that a failure. I don't think we help that patient at all. So I think we need to be you know really smart about um, about those strategies. And this is why I alluded to that. Um, I'm really excited about the 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 algorithm that we were able to implement with laparoscopy and being smart about who we operate on for aggressive surgical efforts and so on. It's clearly important 
Um, but not everybody can and should have, um, uh, you know, that kind of an effort and so on. So I think that kind of an algorithm, and that'll continue to evolve. I think perhaps imaging will improve, perhaps with AI algorithms, it'll evolve further. Perhaps there will be other markers that, that will uh, replace laparoscopy. You know, so there are many opportunities still, you know, in, in that area. Another aspect of surgery that I think is um, is a, an area that's going to develop quite a lot, I think, in the next five years, is that at times, you know, when we give chemotherapy, for example, in a upfront setting, meaning neoadjuvant chemotherapy, and then we do surgery, boy, during the surgery, at times, it's hard to tell what's scar, meaning, quote, burned out tumor, versus what's real viable tumor. Differentiating the two isn't always easy. And, you know, if somebody has burned out tumor where there's no viable tumor, you don't want to go crazy trying to remove all those areas either. So we want to be able to, uh, you know, in in essence, in real time, try to figure out what's what what are the areas that we really need to go need to go after. So Dr. Nicole Fleming uh, is leading a, uh, a surgical study here where we use something called a mass spec pen that was developed by Dr. Livia Eberlin, who's a very close collaborator. And this pen um, within minutes can help give you a metabolic profile of, um, you know, of uh, and, and help distinguish, you know, hey, does this really look like scar or does this look like cancer? It's also being tested in a brain tumor setting as well to determine margins and things like that. So, you know, it's in a trial right now, so we don't know how well it may or may not work, but I do think that that's a kind of a, a surgical space where there is opportunity for innovation. Absolutely. Now, with regard to your question about uh, about second look, you know, when I was in training, we did lots of second look surgeries. In those days, they were done uh, through a large incision. And around 19, in the late 90, 1990s, we stopped doing those because there was really no benefit for patients. And and we were and, and it clearly can have risk with it. Well, in 2024, it's a different time. Such surgeries can be done, you know, through a minimally invasive route. So Dr. Jazeri is helping us champion that. Um, and uh, I think you've also had him on, on such discussions so that uh, a lot of these surgeries can be done now laparoscopically where we can take tumor samples and, and be able to do an in-depth analysis of those samples to figure out, hey, why are some cancers persisting at, at such a microscopic level and so on? Second thing is that, you know, compared to the 1990s, we just have so many new and different drugs now. Now, do I know that they're gonna work in this setting? Of course not. Mm -hmm. But I think based on second look uh, assessment, whether it's immune therapy or some of the targeted therapies, or perhaps based on knowledge from testing the tumors, you know, the right kinds of drugs or ADCs, there's just so many opportunities now for testing drugs in that space. So I do think that that it was time to revive the second looks uh, assessment. Um, again, we don't know yet whether this will have benefit for patients, and we always have to keep that as our uh, as our center focus. That you know, we we want to do things to help patients, and that's why we're doing things right now as a part of trial testing. In the long run, we would love to see that uh, become a routine part of care. Absolutely, overcomer at the center of it all, right? So that's what our um, focus always is now. You have imparted so much knowledge to us today. So let's get to know who Dr. Sood is a little bit, switching gears. So outside of that lab coat, uh, what should our overcomers 
know about you that they would most resonate with and how do you overcome your own challenges? Yeah, no, th thanks for asking that. You know, I think the first point that I would make is that, you know, cancer is something that affects pretty much all of us, either directly or indirectly through our families and so on. You know, my father died of a very aggressive form of prostate cancer. And that that had a, I, I know your mother passed away from ovarian cancer. And for me, that had a major impact in terms of um, uh, bringing research into my own career with really a goal of trying to improve cancer therapy. And 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 so, you know, and I, I do think that that'll resonate with, with many people because it, it, I, uh, it affects so many of us in, in, in direct and indirect ways. I think the second um, point that I'll make is that, you know, for me, um, you know, how I handle um, our day-to-day -day stresses or, or um, doing things, you know, physical activity, which I think is so important, and it, 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 and it doesn't have to be anything crazy. We know for patients with cancer, you know, 15 to 20 minutes of walking a few times a week can have a huge impact, you know, in terms of, um, uh, of many aspects of their care. For me, exercise has just been a really important part. Um, and, and so I took up running again. And, and this year, I'm going to, uh, my plan is to run in the Houston Marathon. And this year, I'm, I'm going to work to raise uh, money for the American Cancer Society. And I've, um, uh, you know, requested uh, you to get listed um, as a part of the Houston Marathon. So next year and beyond, we can um, work toward raising support for Overcome um, as well. Uh, but but that that's uh, uh, really an important part that, you know, I, I enjoy exercise, but I also, if I can take advantage of it for, for raising money for efforts such as Overcome or American Cancer Society, I, I enjoy that even more. Absolutely. Thank you very much. And so, um, you know, if you could change the tomorrow for ovarian cancer, what would you do, Dr. Sid? Oh, there's so many things. You know, I, I detected early, I prevent it altogether, um, you know, and uh, th that, that, would, that would be really powerful. Uh, I would improve treatments along the many areas that we uh, talked about. And very importantly, not, not to forget about this part at all, is that, uh, that I would also improve survivorship, meaning uh, reducing side effects of therapy and also help uh, not only uh, patients with cancer, but also their families as well. So I have asked you a lot of questions, Dr. Sood. What, what have I missed asking that you would like to share with us? You know, I think you've you've really covered a lot of things, and uh, uh, if we missed anything, we'll uh, come uh, back, right? I'll just have to come back. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, just in closing, then uh, I know we are getting to the top of the hour. So, what message of overcoming would you like to share with our audience? You know, I'd like to share a message of hope, and I think I mentioned this in the past as well. We know that you know, in the last twenty years, the incidence of ovarian cancer continues to decrease. But and and also we know that um, the uh, prevalence, meaning uh, the number of patients with ovarian cancer who are living, continues to expand. And we know that the overall survival outcomes um, uh, we are we are making progress in, and that's improved uh, substantially over the last twenty plus years. That doesn't mean we're done. That you know, it doesn't mean that we're curing more patients, and and that. That's the kind of work I think that needs to be done, but we are making progress though. 
Thank you so much, Dr. Sood. Uh, this was a fantastic conversation. I know you have to run to your next appointment. So thank you for your time and your fantastic and valuable insights that you shared with us today. And overcomers, I know this was beneficial for you. I mean, as I always say, we, we keep learning from these uh, fantastic and knowledgeable experts that come to us and share their time and their knowledge with us so freely. And we are so appreciative of that. So thank you for watching and we'll be back for the next episode of Connect Over Coffee very soon. Until then, you keep overcoming. Thank you and bye. Thanks. Thank you for joining us. Make sure you never miss an episode by clicking the subscribe button now. This podcast is made possible by our sponsors, GSK and Clovis Oncology, and by listeners like you. Thank you for your support.